scripture reading this morning will be found in 1 John at the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers will bring a Bible that you can use throughout our service. 1 John chapter 2 verse 28, reading through chapter 3 verse 10. I'm going to read aloud and ask you to just follow along with me as I read. If you would all stand, let's stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that, is that it, didn't, it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Praise God for his word. We pray that God would help us in our understanding and help us in our godly living, living out the truths of his word. If you would remain standing with me, we'll pause for a moment of prayer. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And then our choir will come for a special selection before the preaching of God's word on this text this morning. So please remain standing, bow with me in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace that allows us to be breathing today, to be living today, to be able to come out and worship you. And thank you, Lord, for giving us a reason to worship because you are a great God. You are good to us. Your grace has been poured out on us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to worship you through him. We come to praise you for, for who he is and what he has done, what you have done through him. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given to us to teach us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to even rebuke us and then to comfort and to help us. We thank you, Lord, for your work. We thank you for your people gathered here today, each one, Lord, that got up this morning with the thought of coming to worship and to serve you here at Sweet Communion. We thank you for each person here today. We pray for your word as it goes out today that you would open our hearts, our minds, our understandings, so that we might receive your truth, that we might be challenged by it. We're we need to be challenged, encouraged, where we need to be encouraged, and pointed to our one and only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are part of this group who could not be here today, 
or those who are here and yet they are still suffering from different uh, physical ailments that, that affect all of us but uh, have affected some of us to a greater degree. And we just pray that you would be with them. We thank, thank you for, for each one. We, uh, we just think of, of, I pray for my dad, Lord, who's not here today. I pray, Lord, that you'd help him, that you'd heal and bring comfort to, to his body. We thank you for Sister Lola Spears being here today and being faithful, even though she's still going through a lot of trauma with her own physical health. We thank you. We pray that you would just encourage her heart, that you would help her, give her comfort in her physical being and, and healing, Lord. Uh, we pray for Sister Minnie Kathy, who hasn't been here in quite a while in her bodily presence, but we thank you, Lord. We still see her grandchildren, and we still see uh, just her willingness to serve you. We pray for, for her, that you would bless her, you would encourage, that you would heal, and that you would uh, um, uplift her spirit. We thank for Sister Brenda, Lord, that Brenda Adams, that you would um, work with her, Lord. We know that she's been suffering from different ailments, that you would, uh, that you would heal her, that you would encourage her heart, Lord, as she uh, continues to trust in you, that... Um, even if you don't heal, we know that these bodies don't last forever. Even if you choose not to, that uh, your grace is sufficient for us. We pray, Lord, that you would work mightily in her so, so that she continues to trust in you and uh, is a testimony uh, for you. We, we pray for Sister Beverly, Lord, Alexander, that you would watch over her. I know, talked to Charles this morning and know that she is, is still in a hospital now and still, uh, they're still looking for uh, her, her levels to, to, to uh, show an indication that she's getting better. And we just pray that you would just be right with her, be with the staff that ministers to her, be with, with uh, her son-in-law and daughter here as they faithfully serve. And I know that they care much for, for, for their mom. We just pray, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts and Charles as well, Lord. We thank you for Sister Bonnie and, and her being here today and asking, Lord, that you would just continue to, to raise and bless her physically, Lord. Thank you for her work in, in this ministry, truth seekers, and so many other ways that she's an encouragement, as well as her husband, Bill, as, as well. We just pray that you would encourage their hearts, Lord. We pray for our moms who are expecting, Lord. Uh, uh, as we know, any day now, we just pray for, for each one of them, Lord, Keisha, Monica, and uh, we, we just pray for, for them, too, as their delivery date is coming very soon, that um, you would be with them as Patty as well, as she looks forward into early next year, uh, that you would you watch over and bless them, give healing to them and their children, the child that they bear, and that uh, that delivery might go well. We pray, Lord, for parents now as they expect a new one, that you would uh, uh, give them uh, your wisdom to care for the children that you've put into their charge, that they might bring them up in the teaching of the Lord by example and by teaching. So, Lord, we pray that uh, you would use them in mighty ways. We thank you for your people here. Others I know, Lord, who are suffering from different things that I haven't mentioned, but you know them all. You know the conditions. We pray that you would just watch over them. You would bless. Speak through your word this morning. Open our eyes to your truth and guide us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning starts at the end of chapter 2 as we continue in our series in 1 John. I really enjoy preaching through a series because of the continuity it provides both to me as a speaker and to you as a listener. And as you go through this series, as you uh, take note, as you follow along, as you keep up, you can see um, one of the things I like about a series is you don't just get a point here and a, a point here. You get the flow 
of God's word. You get God wrote this. He wrote 1 John through the Apostle John as a letter, and there's a flow to it. And it doesn't just stop here and cut off there, but there's a flow and there's a connection to what he's saying. Particularly in 1 John, there's, there's almost a cyclical flow to it. it. It'll come to a point and come back around and grab that point again. And one of the things that we're seeing that's emphasized in John is those things that point out the faith of a real believer so that you can see what a real believer looks like and in doing so encourages those who trust in Christ that they are, they are standing on a firm foundation and they should have confidence not in themselves or their own doing but in Christ who gives them the, the foundation, who, who gives them the faith, who, 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 who brings them to be, as using the, the vernacular of 1 John, brings them to be born again. John also, as a purpose in his writing, seeks to pull out that faulty foundation that some are standing on and let them know that they're in trouble. They have no reason for confidence because their faith is not in Christ. And he gives them a test. So that he said, you want to know whether you're a true believer? Here's a test. Here's how you can judge for yourself whether you are genuine in your faith or whether even someone else is genuine in their faith. It's a test for them. And so today we see one of those tests. We actually started last week when we got into chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and we said that uh, chapter 28 and 29 began to talk about what I call this principle of righteousness. Remember me saying that last time? There's a principle of righteousness, and he speaks out that principle very clearly, and then as he goes into chapter 3, he elaborates on it. What is that principle of righteousness? It is this. Ready? <laughs> Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He says, if you know this, you can be sure of this. The first this is he is righteous. He is righteous. Who is the he? It's Jesus himself. Let me start there. You cannot call yourself a believer if you do not know and understand that Jesus is righteous. It's impossible. It's those who oppose Jesus who are saying, yeah, yeah, you're doing these miracles, but that's not the work of God. They said, that's the work of Satan. Jesus says, you committed an unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Son of God and the Holy Spirit of God. Because they say, you are a lie. And Jesus is the truth. And he is absolutely righteous. So to say that Jesus is not righteous in any way, to suggest or even hint at that, is blasphemy and totally contrary to Scripture and what God says. He says, if you know, or since you know, or since this is a fact, that Jesus is righteous... Know this also, is what he's saying. What is this, this also? Here's the foundation. Jesus is righteous. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I'm going to elaborate on that point as he goes through. But we talked last week about what it means to practice righteousness. <laughs> practice is what we do. It's what we work at. Is what we exercise to do, is, is what we gain skill in doing, what we do regularly, what becomes a habit for us. Those who work at righteousness, 
who perform it, who do it regularly, who make a habit of it, making an exercise of it, it's not just one day out of their life. It's not just Sunday. It's a pattern in their lives. It's a pattern. It's a repeating pattern. It occurs over and over and over again. What does practice mean to do something over and over and over and over again? I practice my instrument. I want to get better at it. And I know no matter what my skill level is, if I do it over and over and over again, I'm going to gain some skill. Practice righteousness works that same way. But he says this. It's not just the hard work that you put into it. It's the work that God has done in you. Those who truly practice righteousness show that they have what? Been born of him. They have been given life. By God. So that's one of the principles of righteousness. He also talks about what that practice of righteousness does in our life in a practical way. It, it builds our confidence so that we don't have to be ashamed at Jesus when he comes. We don't have to shy away from, we don't have to shrink back, we don't have to fade into the background when Jesus comes because we have been doing what he's called us to do, we gain confidence. You've heard that practice makes perfect. Well, practice works at perfection. Practice produces or builds confidence. You want to do something well. When it comes time to perform, based on your practice, you will do probably what you have done in practice. But if you've done well in practice and you've done consistently in practice, you'll be confident when that time comes. So when, when you're studying for a test <laughs> and, 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 and you, you close the book and you ask somebody to ask you the question to see if you know the answer, let, let me break it down. You're practicing on your memory verse, amen, and you close it and, and you want to see if you know it word for word and, and, and you begin to perform it. You stumble and you get a few words mixed up, but as you go and go and go, you get smoother added to them when you stand in front of the whole Sunday school and the pressure is on and the test is on, you have confidence because you have worked at it and it has produced in you a skill that you can now display before others. So that practice produces that confidence. One of the, the biggest fears that we have is, is, if I heard, is the public speaking. I don't want to get in front of somebody because I don't want to make a fool of myself in front of somebody. But as you prepare properly, then you're no longer ashamed to do because you, you've prepared, you've practiced, you've rehearsed, you've gone over that. So it is in living righteously. righteously. We work at it daily. It becomes a habit. And so when the test time comes, when's the test time? It says here, when he appears, when he appears, what's going to happen when he appears? He is going to judge us for who we are. You've heard Jesus said, in that day, many going to come to me in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says that many going to come and say, hey, <laughs> Father, Father, or, or, or Lord, Lord. I've done this and I've done that and I qualified to be in your kingdom. He says, I don't know you. And he says this, depart from me, what? You righteous people? You workers of iniquity. He said you are like a wolf in sheep's clothing. You've been playing the game, but you haven't been practicing righteousness. You haven't made it a pattern of your life. So he says this, when the test time comes, and that test time is Jesus' appearing. Notice how he mentions that several times in this verse. Verse 28. I'm in chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. So when he appears, first time he mentions, we may have confidence, not shriek in shame, at his coming. He appears at his coming. He goes into chapter 3 with that same thought. Let's get into chapter 3. The emphasis on chapter 3 actually starts in verse 28 of chapter 2 when he begins to address his audience as children. That's significant. That's not just a cute word he uses. 
it is significant. He says in verse 28, little children. And now little children, he says, abide in him. So he begins to think. He continues that same thought in 29, even though it doesn't use the same word. I want you to carry, I want to carry that thought with you. Verse 28, now little children. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You say, where do you get children in that verse? Last couple words, has been born of. Has been born of him. <laughs> What's a child? One has been born from their parents. So he continues that same thought, that same focus, that same thing. Little children, you've been born of your father, he says. You've been born of your father, little children. He continues that same thought in, in chapter 3, verse 1, and that's why I've connected these. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He said that word isn't by accident. It's not a coincidence. It, 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 it's, it's, it's purposely. We are. We are the offspring, the children of God. He doesn't say that word or use that term lightly as if everyone in creation is a child of God in the same way, because no they are. He gets more specific as he goes on in this chapter. And let's take a look at what he's saying. Notice the terms. We looked at little children, verse 28, born of him in verse 29. There's another term that speaks of this children theme. And, and it's earlier in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, what kind of love? The father. The father. Again, this theme of children, father. And then he says, love that the Father has given to us. It's a known thing that the Father or the parents love their children. And here he's picking up on that. The Father has loved us as children, and he's given, he's bestowed to us some, some great things. See what kind of love. He, he's, he's just amazed at it. He's, he, he's, he's looking back at it. See what kind of love. Don't you see it? The kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. We should be called the children of God. It's God who calls us that. He speaks to his own, and he speaks tenderly because he loves them, because he has brought them to life. He has given them physical life. He has given them spiritual life. In other words, he has forgiven their sins so they could be brought back in right relationship with him, and they now are his children. It's a great thing to be the child of God. It's a great thing to know for sure that you are the child of God. And, and, and the writer is saying, I want you to know this. I'm not trying to put it like a, a, a carrot before a horse and, and try to uh, urge you towards something. No, I'm, I'm, let, I'm spelling it out. You are called the children of God. But then he specifies what that means. What does that look like? He says in verse 1, and so we are. He picks on the theme again in verse 2 with the word beloved. Beloved. We, we use that word, but, but don't take out the significance of it. You are dearly loved as a father loves his child. His own child. His special child. His unique child. The one that he has given life to. He says beloved. Don't you ever question whether the Father loves you when he says and shows you all the time how much he loves you. Beloved, dearly, specially loved one, know that you're loved by God. What does that mean practically to you? He says, beloved, we are God's children now. It's not something we're becoming. It's not something that's off in our future. Right now, we are actively, we are the children of God. It's interesting that John in the gospel is, pre is preaching to a broad 
group people where some of the other gospels, Matthew in particular, speaks, uh, is, is, is addressing or has a flavor of, 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 of speaking to a narrow group of a group of Jews specifically. John is speaking to the Gentile world and he is saying this. Those who trust in Jesus are the children of God, no matter where they came from, in their heritage, in their background, their, their natural origin, by the work of the Holy Spirit, they are, you are, the children of God. He says, we are, we are that right now. Then he says this, it doesn't yet appear, where am I, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He still has that thought in his mind that when he appears, when Jesus comes. So he says, I want to build your confidence so when Jesus comes, you can, you can be at rest, you can be at peace. Know this, that you are his children. Know this, that you've been born of him. And that builds a confidence so that when he does come, you don't have to, you don't have to be afraid of that. I have to admit, that there's times when I say, Lord, I'm not sure if I'm ready for you to come. Because, you know, I, I shiver to think that I'm going to stand before you. And I think that's a natural thought. We live in the fear and respect of God. But what God says is, look, you don't have to worry about you gaining uh, confidence in this uh, a meeting with me because it ain't based on you. <laughs> it's based on what I've done for you. It's based on, look, I brought you into the world. It's kind of like a baby saying for the first time, mommy looking in my eyes and I'm looking in mommy's eyes. Mommy, I don't know if you're going to like me. Are you really going to take me home? What does mama say? Are you kidding me? You've been inside me all this time. And I've longed for this moment where now you are outside and I can relate to you and share with you the love that I have for you that developed even before you was ever conceived. God says that to us. You are my children now, and when he appears, don't worry about it. Because it's like your daddy coming to get you. And we like, ooh, I wonder, <laughs> you know, am I going to be all right? So the writer is building our confidence. Why will you be all right? Because of who you are. <laughs> you are the children of God. How did that come into play? Because you were born of God. So he says, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. He's, he's talking about the future and, and what, what kind of bodies are we going to have and, and what kind of life are we going to live in? He says, I could tell you a little bit about that, but the details about that aren't all clear yet. But this thing you know, <laughs> that you are his and you will be more like him. You will become more like Jesus is. And there's a reason for that because he's still talking about this theme of you as children. He's saying it is clear that Jesus is the son of God. He is the perfect, holy son of God. And in being perfect and holy, he's just like his father. And God's other children are going to be more like that too. Children from the, from the same father seem to have certain traits and they resemble each other in certain ways. They are not exact copies. They're not identical twins necessarily, but they, it, it is clear physically that they're connected. And he's saying, you are God's children. Jesus is God's son. He resembles his father in his traits in a great, infinite, and holy way. And we, as God's children, will resemble our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's also the son of God. 
we will resemble him. We will be like him. We'll see him as he is. Our eyes will be open. And so he doesn't give us all the details. I like how God's word does. It's like, it's like you can't handle all the details. Why do you keep asking all them questions? You know? We like a little kid. Are we there yet? Well, what they want to know is how far away are we? You really don't want to know that. We are 515 miles away, which is 13 hours away. Now go back to sleep. Two minutes later, Mommy, are we there yet? No, now we 512 miles away and go back to sleep. You really don't want to know that. You don't need, it doesn't help you in any kind of way. What you want to know is, are we going to get there? And can we get there fast? We ask a lot of questions. He doesn't give us all the details of what we're going to be like, but he tells us enough to know. He tells us enough to have confidence in what he's doing. He's basically saying, don't worry about all that. I got that covered. You think I did all this and didn't have that covered too? You think somehow in my mind I didn't prepare for that? You think somehow in my all-knowing self I didn't think about and plan for and make every detail? It's just not about sharing it all with you. I don't need to. But I got you covered. Trust me. See, we don't like to hear that from a human viewpoint. I, I relate to that. I don't like folks. Trust me. What you mean? Who is you? <laughs> Government tell you that all the time. Trust me. That's why I'm so suspect. I don't trust them at all. But see, that's man to man. We're dealing on a different realm. We're dealing vertical relationship. God says, trust me. I said, you know, I can say, Father, you prove your trust every moment of my life. What you have said is true. What you said will happen is certain to appear. I do trust you. Father, help me when I waver from that. I do trust you. So he says, we'll be like him. And then he says this, verse 4, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When you are thinking about this test that's coming up, that Jesus is going to appear, and you're getting yourself ready for that, you build confidence. You purify yourself. It is a motivating thing for those who trust in Jesus to think about and plan for and prepare for his coming. In fact, that's what we ought to be about. We spend so much time on nonsense things. I didn't say that they're not important, but in the, in, in the whole view of things, how important is it that I swept my kitchen floor this morning? Let me put it this way. How important is it that I raked the leaves on my lawn last week? Because it snowed right after it. And I ended up shoveling. You have a shovel and you got snow and leaves. I'm like, what is this? The leaves didn't all fall from the tree and the snow is falling. In, in, in perspective, how important is it our day-to-day task? that we spend so much time and so much effort worrying about instead of recognizing that we have something that's coming up that's really significant, and that is our meeting with God. Now, I'm not saying we ought to sit on some hill and, and quit our jobs and wait for God. The Bible tells us, no, that's the wrong thing you ought to do. What you ought to do is do your daily task with that perspective. I do what I do, what God has called me to do, because I know he's coming. Because I'm going to be ready when he's coming. I'm going to be faithful until he comes, and that prompts me to continue to be fervent. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Therefore, what? Be steadfast. Because you know Christ is coming, that, that great chapter of Christ, uh, the resurrected Christ in our resurrected bodies, because you know this is our future, be steadfast, unmovable, always, I like that, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, what, in your own thing? No, in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your labor's not in vain. You know you're not doing it for nothing. You know there's purpose behind everything you do when you serve Christ with purpose. So he says when you have this kind of hope, it purifies you. It keeps you on the right, on the right trajectory. It keeps you living right and for the right purposes. You know, we get happy because Christmas is coming and I'm going to do that. I'm going to work overtime. And it seemed like, you know, my 80 hours I worked this week seemed like nothing because I don't got extra Christmas money. And all that hope of this 
Great thing we're going to have this paycheck that's coming up. It, it spurs us to endure all our hardships. And God is saying, well, that's cool. That's, that, that, that's, that's a good example, but you're not looking high enough. You need to be looking as to, to the great Christmas. <laughs> not the first coming of Christ, the second coming. The great Christmas when he's going to come and, and, and he's going to usher in his kingdom. Now, let's get into the meat. Verse 4 through 10. He begins to give us a practical understanding of the principle of righteousness. Remember in verse 29, he is righteous. Those who practice righteousness have been born of him. One way of stating that is this way. Those who are righteous do righteousness. Those who are righteous do righteousness. Those who are, let me insert this word, I have it in parentheses in my notes. Those who are made righteous, because that's the only kind of way we can be righteous, is to be made righteous, doctrinally and Biblically, we call it an imputed righteousness. Not something that I did myself. It's something that God placed on me. Christ imputed righteousness to us. His death on the cross was put on my account, all right? Imputed to me, given to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it myself, but it's been given to me. It's been transferred to my account, by my rich father who had all the righteousness. He gave me some. He transferred that righteousness to me. Christ died to pay for my sin, and in paying for my sin, he transferred or imputed righteousness to me. Therefore, when God looks at me, he sees not my righteousness, he sees Christ's righteousness. He said, well, where does that come from? Second Corinthians. Let's take a look at it. Second Corinthians 5, is it? Bible scholars know this. Five twenty one, Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Read that again. For our sake he made him, he meaning God the Father, made him God the Son, Jesus, to be sin. He put sin on Jesus that didn't belong to Jesus, it belonged to me and you. Jesus had no sin. He makes that emphasis. It says here, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He made Jesus, he put sin on Jesus of all who would trust him. He put all of our sin on Jesus, and Jesus became sin for us or in, in our place. That's why the Bible says God looked at Jesus, and Jesus looked to God and says, My Father, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God looked on Jesus and the sin that he had taken on, and he had to turn his face from the sin. And yet his son is sinless, and he could not reject his son. So his son paid for our sin. He became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. So there was a transfer made. He took on our sin, was put on him. His righteousness was transferred to us. When God sees us now, he sees our, he sees Christ's righteousness. Our sin was placed on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness was placed on us. God sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees his children. Isn't it, isn't it something, a child is born? Mom and daddy saying, oh, how beautiful. Other of us are like, mm. Child all red and yellow and green and head kind of smooshied up and everything. And mama saying, oh, beautiful child. Beautiful child. Why? It's my child. And I look past all the faults. I see them. I know what they are. 
But I look past, you know what? That's my child. God says, I know my children got sin. I took care of that. I'm not blind. I see them. I know who they are. But I took care of that. I put their sin on my son, Jesus, and I put his righteousness on them. And I see, look at my child. Look at my child. Look at the righteousness because they have the righteousness of my son. Look at my child. That's why we can have confidence. But this confidence means something. See, some people want to take the doctrine to say, well, in that case, since God looks at me and sees Christ's righteousness, I can do whatever I want. Don't matter. <laughs> now, you know, Scripture is going to point that out. It's going to say, no, nah, uh-uh. your thinking is totally wrong. It's totally wrong. And here's the verses that prove it. First John chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now that seems pretty clear. Sin goes against God's law. And what happens to those who go against God's law? They are condemned and judged. So every sinner is condemned. Because they have gone against God's principle, God's character, God's person, God's law. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. In order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Making it clear again, Jesus' mission was to deal with sins once and for all, but in him there is no sin. Somebody once asked a question, not just using this, you know, um, hypothetically, but it's so true. Somebody asked the question, well, Pastor, how much of that do I got to believe for me to be saved? You know what the answer is? All of it. Every word that God says, you must believe. Every word. You don't get to pick and choose. Because the moment you begin to edit, well, God says, well, I'm going to take this out, but I'm going to put this in, and I'm going to take this little bit out here. God, I don't, I don't believe that. You know, let's just cover that up, and let's just take this and that. It's no longer God's word. It's yours. You can't touch God's word. It ain't a proposition of how much percentage you want to believe of it. God is the true take it or leave it. And guess what? All these people say amen. All these people take it. <laughs> they know it's life for them. And they know it's true. <laughs> God has convinced them of his truth because that's who he is. You don't know better than God. The stuff you struggle with, keep on struggling with it. That's all right. We like a worm trying to understand a man. When it says, show me a worm who can understand a man, I'll show you a man who can understand God. So keep struggling. But know that God is, is real, God is true, God is right. Absolutely right, 100% every word that he has said. Everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The phrase keeps on sinning is an accurate phrase because it depicts the, the character or the tense of the Greek verb. It, not, it means not just to sin once but to make a practice of sinning, to sin as a habit, as a regular part of life. Now, some people think they can turn it off and turn it on. I don't sin all the time. You may not practice sin every time in every single act that you do, but what you do is you practice a rebellion against God to do your thing your way when you feel like it and not do what God says. Everyone 
I like these statements of whoever, no one, everyone. No one, verse 6, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Then he says this, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Apparently people are trying to deceive like they do today. No, that ain't true. Look, you don't have to obey God to love God, to serve God, to be born of God. But that's exactly opposite of what God's word is saying here. Notice the no one. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, you can wrestle and argue with that all you want. And I challenge you, you go ahead and argue with God in the privacy of your own home at, at night. Turn around on your bed if you want. But God's word is still true. No one, he says, who abides in him keeps on sinning. And he goes on to explain why as we go on. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's saying sin is associated with Satan himself. He is the originator of it and, 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 and the one who is prompting that. And those who practice a lifestyle of sinning, which is where we all were before we were born again, for those who are born again, for those who aren't born again, that's where you still are, one who practices sin. He says it's impossible for you to live by God's standard. In order to be righteous, put it this way. He says this way. There's no way to practice righteousness apart from the new birth. It's impossible. In order to practice righteousness, you must be righteous and not just act righteous from time to time. You ever see those commercials where somebody says, you know, um, I play a doctor on TV. But I'm not really a doctor. I know what they're saying. They act a role, and sometimes we, we, we get so used to seeing them wearing that doctor's coat and playing that role, we think they're real doctors. And so they get on a commercial and they endorse some medicine or some drug, and we, we oh yeah, Dr. So-and-so, who is that? He ain't even a real doctor. He's been playing a role. He's saying this. You can't do righteousness apart from a change that God has to make in you. That's here is called being born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Turn with me to John chapter 3, just to, just to review a few things there. John chapter 3 is such a profound yet basic and simple concept that Jesus brought to this man who, who was skilled in learning. He was a teacher. A professor, if you will. An expert in the law. So in verse 3, after he goes on trying to compliment Jesus, you know, Jesus just cut to the chase. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I kind of dare you to read verse 1 and 2 and, and, and see where Jesus was coming from because that comes right out. He just cut to the chase with Nicodemus. Yeah, I know you, you the one. I have a lot of respect for you, man. I got a lot of love for you, man. You know, all the things you've done. and Look at them disciples, man. I, they follow you. They, you know, I ain't like them other Pharisees. I, you, you, you the man. Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you something. True. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus must have had his, his just blown away. Just, what? First, what do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? I'm, a, I'm, I'm an expert in the law of God. 
I tell other folks what the law means. They come to me asking questions. And you tell me I can't even see, and then what's this stuff about being born again? What are you even talking about? Well, if he had read really the Old Testament, he'd know <laughs> that there's a work that God does by his spirit within his people that brings them to life. So he says this. I want you to notice a couple things about what he's saying. There's what I call an absolute imperative. Now, I know that's, that's double talk because imperative means just that. Imperative means it's something absolutely necessary. It's required. It's a command. It's unavoidable. Jesus says it this way in a couple different ways. He says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a condition that you can't avoid. It's the only way to seeing God's kingdom. And he says it this way again in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now you can argue about what water and spirit mean, but it's clear he's talking about unless a person is truly born again, he cannot come into God's kingdom. He cannot come before God. He cannot enjoy the fruits of God's rewards for his people unless he's born again. Then he says it a third time this way in verse 7. Simply, you must be born again. What's the requirement? You must be born again. John in his epistle that we're looking at is simply pulling those truths together and saying, look, there's no way to practice righteousness unless you have, in fact, been born again. When we are born again, God gives us a new nature, a new desire, a new heart, a new want to be. Now I want to be. I want to be obedient to God. I want to love God. I want to walk in his ways. He gives that to We didn't manufacture that up ourselves. God uses his term born again for this specific reason is because a child does not bring himself into this world, into life. It is the act of something greater than him that's acting upon him that he doesn't even know about or understand. In the same way, spiritually, God acts on an individual in, in, in a way they cannot fully understand, but produces verifiable, visible results. Jesus explained this way. He says, look, you don't fully understand the physical world, and if I tell you the truth about that, you, you, you can hardly accept it, and now I tell you the truth about the spiritual world, and you balk at it. Surprise, surprise, surprise. What he's saying is, it is a mystery that is beyond human understanding. But it's just like in the physical world, life and birth are mysteries beyond human understanding. Now, doctors can talk about, you know, I delivered this baby. No, you was just there to catch it when it came out. That's all you did. That's all you did. You did not produce life within that womb. You did not make sure that that baby was nourished and healthy until it was time that God said it should be delivered. You didn't even know when it was going to be delivered. You told me this due date. I went to the doctor that time. I had contractions. I'm not talking about myself. But my wife had contractions. And you said, hey, I think it might happen. Our first child. Before Brian was born, you know, we didn't know what to do. And so Donna started having contractions, and, and we went in the hospital. They said, it ain't it. It ain't it. Go back home. Take a warm bath. I said, doctor, I'm going to go ride my, my wife around, and we're going to go over a couple, couple railroad tracks and have a few bumps and see if that help her out a little bit. We went home later on. She relaxed, and that evening, sure enough, we went back to the hospital. The doctor doesn't know when. He just knows this ain't the time now, but he doesn't know all things and certainly does not produce the things that happen. He's just a witness to it. 
his experience and his knowledge may be vast, that's great, but he has nothing to do with imparting life or delivering that life. But Jesus states it in even simpler terms to Nicodemus. He said, you know what? It's like the wind. You can't see it. All you see is what it produces. You don't know where it's coming from. He's saying this is a mystery that you cannot understand and you cannot reproduce. Make the wind. We don't do that. Now you say we have wind tunnels, we have, we have wind uh, turbines, and we have, we, all they're doing is trying to take the energy that the wind blows this thing around and produce that into an electronic uh, energy uh, that, that can be sent somewhere so, so you and I can use it. They're not producing it. They're not making it happen. Solar panels, all they're doing is collecting the rays of the sun and trying to transfer that into a usable energy that you can use. But they don't produce the rays. God does that. Life comes from God. Even science, scientists know that because they can't describe it. They say, we don't want to talk about God. We just talk about something else. But one of their rules is you, you cannot change, you cannot produce energy. You can try to transform it from one to another, but you cannot produce it. Same thing with life. You cannot produce life. That's in God's hands. And he says spiritually, it's something that you cannot understand. It's a mystery, but you can certainly see the impact of it. You cannot produce it yourself. So he says like the wind. You don't see the wind. You see what the wind does. We see leaves blowing around. and say, wow, it's really windy out today. And I ask you, where's the wind? It's a volume of air moving. I understand that. But where's the wind? What you see is the dust, the leaves, and everything that the wind blows. And he says this, you can't tell where it's coming or where it's going next. You know, they could predict that. It snowed last week, and they said, we're going to get anywhere from two to four inches. And what they really mean, we're going to get anywhere from zero to something over that. Because you don't produce it, you can't predict it. And he's saying, so it is with this spiritual thing called life that God produces. He said, that which is born <laughs> of the spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Flesh produces flesh. We understand that. Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces that which he produces, which we call spirit, life, spiritual life. So he says this in a nutshell. It is impossible for me or you to live righteously apart from God, causing us to have life and to be born again. He also saying this, those who are truly born again, it is impossible for them to keep on sinning. It is totally against God's nature. God's living in them won't let them continue down that path. Don't miss that point. Don't miss that point. He says, you can't produce this yourself. You can't stop either what, it, what God's work will accomplish. To those who have been born again, we can't keep on sinning. You say, well, pastor, I can. I say, well, you haven't been born again. And it's not just me saying it, it's God's word saying it. You know, some people want to say, well, I've been born again, but then I wasn't. <laughs> really? That's not what God's word says. It says he produces in you himself. One of the things that is focused on children in this passage is like father, like son. Jesus is so much like his father because he is the son of God. And, and he bears those characteristics. Now, we know he is God himself. We become more and more like God because, and he says this in his passage, of the seed that God has put in us that is of him. He's given us life, so the life that we live, we reflect in being like him. Think about it. A seed that's planted in the ground will reflect what it's from. If it's an apple seed, guess what's going to be produced? Corn? 
No. Apples. I like them easy questions, don't you? But they make sense. They make total sense. The seed that's planted in the believer who's been born again is God, the Holy Spirit. Guess what's going to be produced? Righteousness. Now, it doesn't say we're, we're not going to struggle in our walk. Remember what chapter 2, he says, look, I'm writing this so you won't sin. But if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He said, we're going to struggle in sin, but what we won't do is give up on that struggle. We won't stop pursuing God. We won't stop practicing loving God, living for God. We won't stop doing that. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, believer, <laughs> be encouraged. Even in your struggle against sin, you show the work of God that won't make you satisfied and happy with sin. Someone once asked the question, can a believer commit suicide? And what happens when he commits suicide? Well, the answer is <laughs> he, he probably can, but he's going to struggle a lot to do that. And in fact, what may very well lead him there is the agony and the struggle that he has with sin, and he's forgotten what the answer to that is. He's looking to himself instead of looking to God who says, look, I sent my son to destroy the works of the devil. And in you, you have the power, and I expect you to live out like my son. To walk in faith by God. So the believer who's walking, he said in chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 28, abide in him. The believer who's walking, who's abiding in Christ is saying, Lord, I struggle, yes, but I will not walk away from you. I will not give up on the path that you have set for me. I, I, will, I will walk with you. I will trust you. I will abide in you. Read through that again. Chapter 2, 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. Rest in the confidence that God says, even in your struggle and your battle against sin, do you show the result of my work or my life in you that you've been born again? You know something about life? <laughs> Those who have it don't want to give it up. They cling onto it. Everything we do is that we might continue doing. <laughs> so it is with spiritual life. God has put that nature in us to love him, to serve him. No matter what we wrestle against, he's saying, abide in me. Trust in me. Find your rest in me. Find your peace in me. Dear Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We know your word builds confidence to those who walk in you and with you. It's a challenge to those who say that they have been born again, and right now the snapshot of their life doesn't line up with that. But that challenge is that they would repent and turn to you. And then there's others who really know that they have not trusted Christ as Savior, and the challenge to them is there's no other way there's no other way to, to live righteously. There's no other way to have a right relationship with you, to see, to see or be a part of your kingdom. There's no other way except the work that you do that causes a person to be born again, which causes them to trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior. I pray you drive that one to trust Christ right now. Paul's right there in my prayer. Each time we preach God's word, we want to see, give you an opportunity to respond. If God is speaking to your heart to trust Christ as Lord and Savior, would you make that clear? Now, I know in a lot of churches they ask you to walk down the aisle and haven't really done that, but that doesn't mean you can't be saved. <laughs> What it means is we want to know for sure that you're not just caught up in a moment, but that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. In just a moment, I'm going to ask 
Brother Cliff Hill if he closes in a word of prayer. But before he does that, I'm going to ask my wife to join me in the back. And here's what I want you to do. If you need to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you know you need to be born again, Jesus says everyone who comes to him, he will not reject. Would you come to him now? Would you, would you say, God, do a work in me? And would you tell me about it? Would you tell someone else about it so that we can pray with you and pray for you before you leave here today? We invite you to do that. You don't know what to pray. I just said, say, Lord, everything in your word is true. I'm a sinner, and I have no other way to get to heaven, to have fellowship with you. And I come to understand that your gospel says, my only hope is Jesus. And Father, I turn to Jesus right now. I don't know all the right words to say, all that I should think, but save me based on what Jesus has done in paying for my sin. I want his righteousness to be mine so that he could take my sin and forgive me of it. And even if you haven't said those words verbatim, God, save me. Save me right now. If that's your heart and your prayer, you need to tell me. You need to tell someone else. You have several leaders in the church, both men and women, you can talk to. Just ask, I want to tell somebody. Just, just tell somebody as we close out. I want to tell somebody what I prayed and ask them to pray for me. Would you, would you take me to a deacon? Would you take me to a deacon's wife? Would you let me tell somebody today? And then the message is, if you are born again, and you know it, there's a mandate on your life to live in obedience to God. You know what? You can't be happy rebelling against God. God didn't make you that way. Stop rebelling. Repent and turn to God. Donna, would you join me? Cliff, would you close us in a word of prayer?